So at any rate, um, induced hypothermia is um, definitely a controversial topic. And the data out there is limited. So we're going to review what the data is and what induced hypothermia really means. Um, the most important thing that you should remember from, from cardiac arrest is getting to the patient on time and doing effective chest compressions and calling for help and then treating the underlying cause. So those are the most important things. Now, I'm not going to talk about any of that today. I may just touch upon it. But really, I'm going to talk about induced hypothermia and what it really means, OK? <laughs> so you can tell where this lecture is headed. So all right, well, I have no financial disclosures. Just want to tell you that I don't get paid by any of these companies. I don't get paid by normal saline cold infusion. <laughs> I don't get paid by any of these catheter companies. And I never, ever will be because I don't want to be. Whatever I say is partly evidence-based, partly my opinion. I'll let you guys discern which one and how you want to go about evaluating that and incorporating that into your practice when you guys graduate from here or when you're in the ED. So the objectives. So we always want to tell you what we're going to talk about before we talk about it. Then we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to kind of repeat it. Repetition is always the best way to go so that, so that we can kind of imprint that in our brain. So we are going to know the major indications and contraindications for mild therapeutic hypothermia. We're going to focus on the initial patient presentation to determine if mild ther therapeutic hypothermia is a suitable option. We're going to recognize physiologic responses to mild therapeutic hypothermia. We're going to be familiar with the practical aspects of instituting it at your shop. And we have just recently, uh, the P&T committee, Dr. Burns has informed me, has approved um, a mild therapeutic hypothermia protocol. Um, and I'll share that with you um, uh, when you guys uh, ask me a little bit later. So. All over again. <laughs> Who's on first, right? So the red phone rings. It's a typical Monday morning. 57-year-old male in cardiac arrest. ETA in three minutes. Coworker found him collapsed with a downtime of three minutes before CPR was initiated by a bystander. So short time of arrival. VTAC was his initial rhythm when the paramedics arrived. He was given a shock, and he was given epinephrine, and he came out of it into a narrow complex rhythm with return of spontaneous circulation. Dr. Reed, you are in the emergency department. You have three minutes before this patient arrives in the ED. You get this notification from the red phone, which you'll see when you're in the department. And they say an ALS run is arriving. And your R2 is busy tubing somebody else. What do you want to do in preparation for this patient? Um, go to the
So good. I think preparation is the key, right? To prepare, to prepare, prepare. At least you're thinking ahead, airway, breathing, circulation. And I know we have a, a certain shift in paradigm, which Dr. Langdorf has now told us with the new um, AHA guidelines. So you, you remember those guidelines, and you're getting ready for your advanced equipment and getting your staff together, and you're prepared, and you're, you're ready to go. Great. So usually when this happens and the patient arrives in RED and we actually give epinephrine or shock someone, we are like, and they re their pulses come back, we're like high-fiving everyone, we're like, yes, we got them back! Pulses are back, they're in a stable or somewhat stable rhythm, maybe they're in sinus tachycardia. And the next, qu next thing we usually do is call the MICU, right? We go, oh yeah, MICU. Well, that's appropriate, I think, to get other people involved because they're not going to stay in our department forever and it's good to utilize your resources appropriately. But don't stop thinking there. We have plenty of work to do. This is one of the sickest patients you will ever get in the emergency department. This is a fairly young person who had a cardiac arrest, a short downtime. You, you revived him or paramedics revived him in the field and now you have an opportunity to really take care of a sick patient and you know how to take care of a sick patient. You have the tools that are necessary to do this. Now, whether you institute mild therapeutic hypothermia or not, that's really up to you. But you should really think about all the things that you've already talked about, Dr. Reed, which is a central line, and A line, whether or not we need to intubate and make sure the tube is in the right place, so on and so forth. Now, when we give epi and, and or a shock and, and, and that adrenaline or epinephrine is swirling around in that patient's bloodstream, this is really, really a time for you to get all this other stuff ready because it's a critical, critical 15 minutes when all this epinephrine is swirling around and the patient is going to maintain their blood pressure. But soon enough, that epinephrine is gone. And whatever got them into the cardiac arrest is going to get them right back into that cardiac arrest. So. It's a little bit of false sense of security, so really make sure that you guys are on your game and that you're ready to move on for, to the next step. Speaking of what got them into the cardiac arrest, is there anything else you might want to consider? We'll talk about that in just a second. So, so really, what we want to do is define moderate hypothermia. So our goal is to define moderate hypothermia, and that is to induce hypothermia to a temperature of 33 degrees Celsius. And what that means is there's been several studies that really have looked at, two studies in particular that looked at hypothermia, and other studies who have looked at inducing hypothermia to a lower level. And it seems like the deleterious effects um, are, are, are far worse when you go underneath 32 or 33 degrees. So the, the second thing is to prevent hyperthermia, to actually prevent the patient from becoming hyperthermic. So why... Why do we do this? It's really to protect the brain, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever watched Pinky and the Brain, but it's to pr <laughs> protect the brain. So no organ system is devoid from insult, and the brain is really an unforgiving from lack of perfusion and from reperfusion injuries. All right. So in talking about hypothermia, we want to talk about there's two clinical trials that are out there that most of the studies are really based upon. And the studies are these, are, these are the landmark studies. And, and the two studies are the Bernard trial. There's a Bernard trial that looked at 77 patients, which showed 
um, an absolute risk reduction of 23%, and the number needed to treat was somewhere in the 4.5% range. There's another study called the hypothermia after cardiac arrest trial, and that is um, that trial was a multi-center study which showed a 24% absolute risk reduction with uh, the number needed to treat about four. So the primary outcome, uh, I think it was somewhere in the range of uh, a several hundred, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think it was like two to three hundred. Yeah. The primary outcome um, was favorable, favorable neurologic outcome. Secondary outcome was death within six months and complication rate within seven days. So these two studies are kind of what all of the mild therapeutic hypothermia is based upon. And so, so it's at, you know, at, if, if you talk to a lot of people, this is really controversial because the data out there is pretty limited. And so really wanted you guys to understand that as you guys absorb this lecture and endorse any kind of treatment plan. So, so with this, these two trials and several other smaller trials, the evidence has led to a backing of various societies and task forces, and some of these are listed here. Um, included in this are the AHA 2010 guidelines, which say consider using mild therapeutic hypothermia. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to play a little game with you guys. And the name of the game is called Number Needed to Treat Game. So I wanted to ask you guys, if we had instituted defibrillation after cardiac arrest, what is the number needed to treat? And what does the number needed to treat mean? We're going to have Journal Club next week. So what does that really mean? The amount of people you have to potentially treat to save one person. Exactly. So whatever your outcome really is, Sometimes there are patient-oriented outcomes. Sometimes there are disease-oriented outcomes. So the number needed to treat is an amount of patients that you need to treat in order to get a specific outcome. Um, this number needed to treat game is based mainly on uh, morbidity and mortality. So they're patient-oriented outcomes and not, not disease-oriented outcomes. So how about defibrillation after cardiac arrest? What do you guys think the number needed to treat? is for that. Dr. Miloshik. I'm going to go with um, to what outcome? To walking out of the hospital? Or? Uh, to save one person's life. Uh, I would say 10. 10. All right. Fair enough. The number needed to treat is two and a half. So a pretty good number, right? You, you treat two and a half patients with defibrillation, and they actually have a positive outcome. How about thrombolytics in stroke? What was that, Dr. Tui? 15. 15. So pretty good. <laughs> this, this number can vary a little bit, but you know, th this, is, this is one person's interpretation of the outcomes. And, and some people would say thrombolytics shouldn't even be used in stroke. But it's, it's up in the 17 range. Uh, and it can be debated. How about thrombolytics in STEMI? Dr. Seip? Eight. 43. <laughs> <laughs> 43. And th this, is, this, is to, this is to prevent one death. Okay, so the outcomes are kind of hard measures here. Uh, this is to prevent, to, pre to prevent death. How about aspirin in a STEMI? One or two? 42, but it's, but it's, you know, 
This is to prevent one death, okay? So one death. 42 people need to be treated with aspirin. It's a pretty cheap therapy, so, you know, so aspirin is, is the way to go. And in hypothermia, it, you, it depends on the literature, but some people say four and a half to six. So just kind of giving you an understanding of, of, of what the number needed to treat is. Of course, there's a flip side, which is a number needed to harm. Um, to calculate the number needed to treat, you know, uh, folks will tell you, um, senior attendings here who have been doing this for a long time, um, will tell you that it is the absolute risk reduction and it's one over the absolute risk reduction and that gives you the number needed to treat. We'll go over this in Journal Club for all of you guys who it's not pounded into your head. Yes, Dr. Schultz? I, I'm going to say this one time now. We'll, we'll, we'll ask anybody. Um, and, and this is, it remains controversial. And it depends how you define the numbers. But two points. First of all, there's only two studies out there. And as we know, um, the population that you study makes a big difference. Uh, for maybe, I'll be generous, let's say there's total 500 patients that have been studied to date. Anybody that looks at stuff and do meta-analysis knows that if you take a bunch of small studies and put them together, it's the same thing as garbage in as garbage out. You need very large studies. When you think about all the cardiac studies, how many 10,000, 30,000 Italians did we have to incorporate into those studies before we finally got definitive answers? So we're looking at trials of a couple of hundred people, and we're making decisions based on this. And if you look at history, God, I wish you guys knew the medical history course all had to take, because there are thousands of therapies that are now in the toilet that started out like this. So that's the first point. The second point is, is that nobody around here has really ever had an experience with hypothermia for anything except me. Because actually, when I, I'm old enough that everything old is new again. You know, if it lasts long enough, the same therapy that used to be tried, which failed, come around again. Well, when I was a resident, uh, I was back east for a year at Johns Hopkins, and they were really big into hypothermia for traumatic brain injury. And it was the same kind of stuff we read. We saw the same types of numbers. And anybody doing hypothermia for brain injury? No. So I'm not saying this one might be right. And I, I don't want to get them to make the wrong impression that I know the answer, because I clearly do not. And this one might be right. But my, my perspective, given I've gone through this once already for other injuries on hypothermia, that one must have healthy skepticism. And if it's the institutional policy, we should do it. But I don't want people coming out of here thinking this is gospel, this is the answer, and that now I have to become a disciple and spread the word. Because we don't know if this is true or not. Could be. God, I hope it is. But um, just keep in mind the lessons of history or you will be doomed to make the same mistake again. Just remain slightly skeptical about this until we get 10,000 Italians that really show up. <laughs> and I think when you're making those decisions, you also have to consider the flip side of that, how much harm can this intervention do? If it does relatively little harm, then you'll be more likely to adopt it than if it's something like giving thrombolytics for stroke and turning it into hemorrhagic stroke and they die, and you really have to weigh those those risks, and also resources can cause harm. So maybe it won't harm this particular patient, but if you're taking up a lot of nursing and outside resources to <coughs> implement this hypothermia, and somebody else is sitting in the waiting room with their undiagnosed MI and dies, that can be an issue too. It's a very good point. You know, I, I think a lot of times uh, being a younger physician, we jump on this evidence-based bandwagon that isn't quite loaded up properly. And so a, a good thing is a tincture of time to make sure this really works. So this is all with a caveat, um, but we'll, we'll talk about some of these very good points that Dr. Koenig and Schultz brought up. So um, I want to talk about disease-specific um, utility of using um, hypothermia. So 
really there's a few questions that come up. So does mild therapeutic hypothermia delay cardiac catheterization? Um, does, does it work um, with PCI? And does it increase the risk of bleeding? So anytime you cool someone, you have some platelet dysfunction and some bleeding dysfunction. And so these are some of the questions that routinely come up. So um, available data does not show that mild therapeutic, mild therapeutic hypothermia delays cardiac catheterization. There's a recent study by Bautista in Recess 2010 that showed no delay in care with, with therapeutic hypothermia. Several studies have shown no worse outcomes, and Dixon et al. showed it was safe and feasible. However, they, however, they were unable to show a reduction in infarct size. So kind of keeping this in mind with some of the studies that are coming out. So, so hypothermia can increase bleeding risk, as we have seen, as we usually seen in trauma. There's that terrible triad in trauma that is often talk, talked about. Um, but the, the New England Journal study by Bernard showed no increase uh, in bleeding using thrombolytics and or antiplatelet and anticoagulation in their study. Uh, and then there's another study by Sheffold in Cardiology 2009, which kind of showed the same results. So, so the answer is it doesn't delay catheterization as far as we know uh, with the limited data. Um, it does not reduce infarct size, um, but that is a disease-oriented outcome and not a patient-oriented outcome. And it does not increase bleeding. So it's at least considered safe as far as we know. Um, how about PE and hypothermia? Here's where the data gets a little bit more dicey. Um, I think most people these days will use therapeutic hypothermia in VTAC and VFib arrest. Some people will use it in PEA arrest. Um, but we start seeing um, people using it for other indications. And now the, the limited data that's there is even thinned out even more. So, so does it work in PE? There's really, really very little data. Uh, most studies, as I've mentioned, have looked at VTAC and VFib. Um, <clears throat> can you use it and then have the patient go down to the CAT scan? The answer is yes. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert, but we, we did do this quite a bit in residency. Again, in, when I was at Loma Linda, and not so much here. I, I don't think I've even had one single patient that I've done therapeutic hypothermia here in the, in the years I've been here. So um, it's easy and it's feasible. Um, and you can have the patient go down the CT scan with all the stuff connected. So yes, they can leave. Usually um, all the stuff is very portable. If you needed to actually disconnect um, the system, they might become slight, their, their temperature might increase by 0 0.5 degrees centigrade, but, but uh, you can actually keep them connected to the system and send them down depending on what kind of system you have. Um, <clears throat> And uh, the bleeding risk, well, you know, we, we just extrapolate from the, from the VTAC and VFib data when using thrombolytics. And so there is one or two case studies, but you really can't say much about that, that shows no um, increased risk of bleeding, but, but just something to consider. The other thing about these interventions that go around and come around, it's just so interesting because there's a primary treatment in emergency medicine. Nobody is dead until warm and dead, right? But here, we're cooling people off on purpose. Or when thrombolytics first came out for MI, it was contraindicated in stroke. And then a few years later, it's indicated in certain types of stroke. So these, these treatments are like 180 degrees apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, intracranial hemorrhage and uh, mild therapeutic hypothermia, does it really work? So several studies have commented on its use, and one in particular by Todd in the New England Journal 
of medicine in 2005 is a randomized controlled trial which um, in aneurysmal hemorrhage and showed no benefit but no increased mortality. So it really was an equivocal study. Didn't, sh didn't help anyone, but apparently didn't hurt anyone either. So things to consider in disease-specific um, conditions. So when, when to really institute it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about pre-hospital care. That's a huge thing here um, at UC Irvine and in our department um, with Dr. Koenig and Schultz and McCoy kind of heading the charge. So pre-hospital care is, is extremely important and how those services uh, link in with ours. So the theory is that the sooner we cool someone, the better. So extrapolating limited studies on field-induced hypothermia um, uh, makes sense. But there's, there's been some recent studies, um, smaller studies, that showed there have been no benefit in starting hypothermia protocols in the field. So we need, we need more data on that. Um, how is that done? It's really done by putting a refrigerator in the truck and then cooling, <laughs> not for beer, but for, but for cooling normal saline. Cool yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, um, the, the other thing that kind of comes up is whether we should have um, receiving centers, so cardiac arrest receiving centers. I, I, I think this is kind of cool, but, uh, you know, this would take a lot of uh, a policy change and political will, of course. But, you know, we have stroke receiving centers, um, we have cardiac STEMI receiving centers, so on and so forth, burn centers. So a few places have done this. Um, New York City, uh, where I trained, um, incorporate this. So there are, there are several um, cardiac arrest receiving centers in the city. And so if someone's arrested in the field, they head directly to one of those centers. Um, uh, Wake Forest, Dr. Seip, did you have anything to do with this? Um, no. No, okay. And it's got an extra R in there. It does? Yeah. It's not like Forest Forest Gump. That's <laughs> probably what I was thinking. <laughs> so uh, so they, they've also instituted a, 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 a protocol. Uh, Arizona has one. And then the 2010 AHA guideline says to send them to a PCI center and to consider inducing hypothermia. So something to consider as we go down the road. But remember, our paramedics are, are included in our team. And this is an interdisciplinary <laughs> approach. So um, we'll talk a little bit about this interdisciplinary approach to, to all of this stuff. So, so what, what should we consider an inclusion and exclusion criteria? Um, this is a sample of one institution's inclusion and exclusion criteria. This comes from Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. Um, I borrowed this from them. Um, there's a gentleman out there by the name of Scott Weingard who's kind of championed the cause over there. And he's really into critical care and ED critical care. So I, I borrowed this from him. But this is very similar to ours, actually. Um, Dr. Burns gave me the protocol a couple of days back, and it's very, very similar. So our inclusion criteria include post-cardiac arrest status, any rhythm as a cause of arrest is eligible. Uh, return of spontaneous circulation less than 30 minutes from EMS or code team arrival. The time of induction, so you need, we need to do this within six hours, otherwise it's generally considered not helpful. Uh, comatose status, that's important. So if their, their circulation is returned and they're walking and talking to you, there's no reason to give them cold saline or whatever, however else you're going to freeze them. <laughs> um, a map greater than 65, um, and this may include using uh, pressors. So um, a lot of these folks have uh, cardiopulmonary uh, stunning, and so pressors may be indicated. 
some of the exclusion criteria, obviously, if they're DNR, DNI, and their code status is such that you know, you're, not, you're not supposed to say them, if they have any trauma, traumatic arrest is completely contraindicated. So that's, that, those are the big ones. Uh, and active, active bleeding or known intracranial bleeding is a relative uh, contraindication. And you see some of the others, including pregnancy, uh, recent surgical procedures, um, and sepsis. So these are some of the things to consider. No, they're not automatically out. I mean, a lot of people are found down, and most most of the time it's not secondary to trauma, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard to discern because they may have a little cephalohematoma, and you're like, wow, is this a traumatic arrest? And then you may scan their head, and they may have no bleeding, and their pulses are back. So you can probably safely say this is not a traumatic arrest. So, no, it, it's it's kind of teasing it out at that point. Um, and, and, and we'll kind of go over a little bit of how to figure out what is the industry standard and who you should start this on. Really, it's up to the individual practitioner at this point. And, um, you know, maybe Dr. Schultz and Langdorf, who kind of do a little, a lot more of the medical legal stuff, can chime in a little bit later on, 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 on some of the cases and whether they've ever seen this on their radar um, in terms of their expert opinion. Um, <clears throat> so... We'll move on a little bit. So here are some common lab changes when you induce hypothermia. So you, you will see a reduction in the patient's potassium and magnesium. You will see a reduction in their bicarb. You will see some slight alterations in amylase, AST, and ALT. Now, blood gases are really tricky. I know, um, you know I'm not a big fan of blood gases, but in someone who's intubated and has an A-line, which this person should have, uh, blood gases get really tricky. So you, I don't know if you guys remember Boyle's Law at all. So <coughs> Boyle's Law, and I forgot it actually, I had to read up on it in, pre in preparation for this lecture, but Boyle's Law has to do with pressure and volume and temperature is a constant. So when temperature is not a constant, when you're actually dropping the temperature, then things change. And what changes is that your P CO2 and your PO2 will be falsely elevated. So <clears throat> uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, lectures and and discussions on how to alert your laboratory at what temperature the patient is at when you send your ABG, and then how to interpret the results secondary to what the patient's temperature is at. Um, if you really want to know about this, I, I can tell you about it a little bit later. I'm going to skip over that a little bit. The pH will be, f will, will be falsely low a little bit, um, and, uh, and so kind of remember that. There, there are other little minor abnormalities. Um, so you absolutely, what you need to do is you absolutely need to check the patient's magnesium and calcium and potassium and keep the magnesium and calcium on the upper limits of normal. So when you're inducing someone, we'll talk about the different phases of hypothermia. When you're inducing someone, you absolutely need to check that Q one hourly. Now that's pretty labor intensive, but anyone who is an ICU patient is going to have labor intensive nursing care and labor intensive doctor care, and that's why we are emergency physicians because we know we can do that kind of stuff. So really keep that in mind. So um, magnesium has kind of a dual effect. It kind of helps keep the myocardium stabilized. It also prevents shivering, which we'll talk about. Shivering is a big thing in hypothermia. And keeping the ionized calcium level will assist kind of in the inotropic effects of the stunned myocardium. At 33 degrees, there's really, you know, they talk about uh, platelet dysfunction. But there's really very little platelet dysfunction. That's an argument that's made, well, wow, you know, there might be bleeding and so on and so forth, or 
you know, we, we're not really sure. But at 33 degrees centigrade, there's only mild antiplatelet effects. You can counteract that by giving desmopressin, if you like, DDAVP. So um, that's, that is a possibility. And there's some, some literature to kind of support that. Um, so the other big thing that kind of pops up is bradycardia. So, so what hypothermia can do when you're really low is cause a lot of fatal arrhythmias. And that's usually under 32 degrees. So, but bradycardia is actually the effect that you want. So when the patient comes in and they're hypertensive and they're tachycardic, it's probably due to the, the epinephrine that's been given and due to their sympathetic surge. But as things stabilize and as you deliver the hypothermic protocol, you actually want bradycardia as low as 40. That's actually your goal. Now, a lot of folks um, will then get kind of concerned and say, oh my gosh, they're bradycardic, let's turn off the hypothermia protocol. Um, and, and that's something you probably should not do. Um, but it, it, it's obviously very, very hard to see someone in the 40s and, and do nothing. Um, but what I will say is you obviously make sure that they're perfusing properly. You keep a map of over 65. If they're not keeping a map of over 65, then you can add pressors on. Now, you had hyperperfusion to the brain, and now you're saying you're going to hyperperfuse the brain more by reducing their cardiac, cardiac output. It sounds pretty ridiculous. But what you're doing is, yes, you're reducing the supply, but the demand is being severely reduced because you're, you're cooling them down. So all of the metabolic processes are actually being decreased. So it's okay. It's probably okay. Um, so don't panic when you see bradycardia. But if you do see rapid atrial fibrillation, um, VTAC, um, you probably should consider stopping the therapeutic hypothermia. Now, some people advocate, some of the experts advocate to kind of treat through that, and if they end up going into VTAC, to get your cardiologist involved and then have them go to the catheterization to figure out what's going on. The other caveat to this bradycardia in hypothermia where everything's slowing down is if you're just checking the pulse on somebody, and this comes back to nobody is dead until warm and dead, make sure you check it for long enough because it could be in the 30s or 20s in somebody who's severely hypothermic, not because you need them that way, but somebody and then this has happened many times they warm up and wake up after you've already informed the family they're dead because that just doesn't go over it that well <laughs> <laughs> and this uh, this slide reminds me also to tell you that always treat the underlying cause so one of the first few things that you should do when someone's found down are the things you guys always do which is check a glucose and check an EKG those are the most important things to do and so you've got to treat the underlying cause or there's, they're just going to go back into cardiac arrest. So if they have a STEMI, activate your cath lab. And, and, and we'll talk about whether to start inducing hypothermia or not and, uh, in a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> Critical care. So, like I mentioned, after return of spontaneous circulation, there's a brief period of complacency. Everyone's high-fiving each other. Everyone is just juiced and amped. Yeah, I got that tube. We brought him back, and we're going to get him to the ICU. Yes, that's true. 
But remember that it takes sometimes several hours or even longer for that ICU bed to open up. And here is a critical time where you guys need to really get your adjuncts and get them done right now. And that means putting in a central line, that means putting in an A line, that means putting, you know, have the nurse put in a Foley to monitor your ins and outs, put an orogastric tube to you know, decompress their stomach, and check a CVP and get the ultrasound around to look at what's going on with the heart and how the IVC is doing in terms of your fluid resuscitation. You know that probably better than I do. So those are, those are really, really important things. So don't be misguided. It's a really a critical time to get everything in order. And um, um, so we, you know, like I mentioned before, that, that you do have a decrease in your cardiac output and increase in your peripheral vascular resistance with mild therapeutic hypothermia. So the supply and is decreased, but don't forget that the demand end is significantly decreased. And treat these patients hemodynamic status much like you would treat a septic patient. So these patients often need a lot of fluids on top of the fluid boluses that you're going to give them with um, cold saline. Okay. <clears throat> so getting down to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of hypothermia. How is it done? Right. We talked a little bit about some of the evidence. We talked. Uh, a little bit about who to include, who not to include, but here's how it's done. There's many ways to do it. Here's the simplest way. The simplest way is to have cold, normal saline, and we need to have that either in the paramedic truck or in our ED and readily accessible. You pull it out, and once you have internal <coughs> spontaneous circulation, you save it for that right patient that you and your attending have decided that this is a person that's worthy of getting this treatment. I would probably at this point, since we're not too familiar with it here at UCI and doing it in the ED, I'd save it for VTAG, VTAC and VFib arrest um, and give them four degrees, uh, 4 degrees centigrade of normal saline. How much? You give them, a, for an average adult, you give them about one and a half to two liters. And you infuse that with a pressure bag. So all that stuff's got to go in within 15 or 20 minutes. So you use a pressure bag and you get that, you get two big large bore IVs or you get your central line placed and you start infusing them. You can put ice packs in the groin and the axilla as well. And this is the induction phase. So the induction phase, you're trying to get them down to 33 degrees centigrade as quickly as possible. Now, a lot of bad things happen in the induction phase. Namely because they're hemodynamically unstable. They just got epinephrine or shock and something put them down. So they're already unstable. Plus, you're cooling them down really fast and a lot of bad things can happen. So this is the time to be hypervigilant in the first hour or two that they're, they're, they're being induced. They really should be induced in the first hour. Um, <clears throat> we also have surface blankets, so you can actually cool them with surface blankets um, and so on and so forth. There's other ways to induce patients, we have, a, uh, we have a machine that we can introduce a central line catheter, and the catheter has a balloon on the end which circulates cold water, and so that you can induce them really, really fast. But a cheap and very inexpensive way is to have normal saline. So you don't need a lot of these gizmos. I mean, it'll make your life easier if you have these gizmos, uh, and it'll make nursing life easier, but you don't need these gizmos. How are they assessing the body temperature? So that's a good point. So the body temperature is assessed. Um, the best way to assess body temperature is through an esophageal probe, so the esophageal temperature probe. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen an esophageal temperature probe. They're really hard to pass. It's not like an NG tube. Super-duper hard to pass these things because they're so flimsy. They kinda, they're almost like um, 
suction, they look like suction catheters that you put down um, an ET tube. And so imagine trying to shove that down someone's throat into their esophagus, super duper hard. But there's a little trick that I'll show you guys later that I uh, learned. Um, but you can do a rectal probe. So the same esophageal probe you can uh, put in the rectum. Um, I wouldn't suggest putting the rectal probe in the esophagus if you've already had it there. Use a fresh one. <laughs> yes, sir. We do. Yeah, we do have the, uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, the, so the rectal probe and then the Foley catheter um, temperature gauge are all very good ways um, to, to actually gauge temperature. Now, some of the folks that do this a lot have, have commented that, that the rectal and, and the bladder probes have a slight lag because they're still kind of peripheral and they have a slight lag into the core body temperature. And so sometimes people have a hard time overshooting temperatures. And the lag is within the range of about 10 minutes. So it's not a terrible lag. But sometimes folks go, wow, I'm inducing them. And then they overshoot them. And then they try to bring them back with normal saline that's <laughs> in room temperature. And so um, just something to consider. I mean, these esophageal probes are really hard. But a rectal probe or, or a bladder probe um, is perfectly fine. And the bladder probe is just like sticking a Foley in there. It has a little. Uh, sensing device in there, so it's nothing like spectacular. It's stuff that nurses do all the time. If you do put a rectal probe in there, the nurses can do it, but it should be about four centimeters from the uh, anal verge. All right. Um, <clears throat> the maintenance phase. The maintenance phase is really for 24 hours. Um, so once you have normal saline and you infuse them and you get them down to 33 degrees, you want to maintain them. And so how do you maintain them? You can maintain them with blankets, really simple stuff, those cool circulating blankets. There's other fancier stuff like internal cooling devices that we've talked about. There's, um, so you just kind of set it and forget it. It's kind of like an interesting thing. You just kind of like doo -doo -doo -doo, put 33 degrees. It senses in a continuous way. It has actually a thermometer. It's an intravascular thermometer. And it senses minor fluctuations in temperature. And it kind of keeps them there. And uh, so you, you, you get what you pay for, but you can do it um, with a budget as well. You maintain this for 24 hours. You monitor the temperature, like I said, with esophageal monitor or other type of probe. So really, the studies have shown um, it's unclear really how long to keep them under, but 24 hours is probably the, the few studies that have been done and proven to show them some benefit. So it's kind of now the industry standard to do 24 hours of hypothermia. Now, this may change when more studies kind of come out. Um, <clears throat> we talked about that. So, and then finally, there's a rewarming phase. So, this is probably not going to be done in the ED, but will be probably done in the ICU setting. So this um, uh, reiterates the fact that this is an in, uh, interdisciplinary approach. So you need a cardiologist or an intensivist or a neurointensivist to really be on board with all of your, all of your planning techniques. So you need to have them on board and have them um, um, in service on how to do this. So that's over eight hours. You want to bring them up about 0 0.25, 0 0.5 centigrades every hour. Uh, you want to control the shivering response. And we'll talk a little bit about the shivering response. So, yeah, that's kind of important because yeah. what's going to happen is if their brains are truly dead, they won't shiver. Yeah. It's also not such a good sign either. Yeah. But if they're going to shiver, you, they're going to defeat your entire protocol. So you have to figure out a way to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, the, the reason why we don't just 
rapidly increase their temperature because it causes a lot of adverse events, including rapid fluctuations in potassium and other electrolytes. So really controlling the rewarming process so you could, as you control the cooling process is the way to go. You want to monitor your electrolytes frequently again during the rewarming process. And you want, once the temperature is at 36, you can then passively rewarm them instead of actively rewarm them. Um, always control hyperthermia, even, after, even during the rewarming phase or after the rewarming phase. Uh, a little bit more about the shivering response. So you really need a protocol in place to, to handle shivering. And shivering is the body's response to hypothermia. <laughs> you want to get warmer. You want to shiver. So shiver is so you increase um, muscle activity and you increase heat. Uh, but you don't want the patient to be increasing their heat. Um, and you need a assessment scale. And the scale goes from 1, 2, and 3. It's really simple. 1, you can barely even notice it. You may just see it on artifact on an EKG. So it's really, really not noticeable. And it's usually just kind of uh, maybe a little upper extremity. Maybe it's just kind of torso and neck. You may see a little, like, little shivering, but you may not see anything. And when you do an EKG, you'll see some fine tremors or artifact on there. So if you do see that, there are simple things that you can do. Um, here in, 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 at UCI, the simple things you can do is put them in a bear hugger. And I know that sounds weird. You're trying to cool them and you're trying to warm them. What's the deal? You want to cool their insides, but you want to keep their outsides warm. So the skin and the hands and feet in particular are a really common place where uh, there are sensory organs uh, uh, and, and, and neurons that, 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 tell you, that tell the body how cold it is. And so if you keep the hands and the feet, you kind of trick the body into thinking that it's warm and they, they tend not to shiver. Um, now, if they, if they move on to uh, stage two, which is moderate shivering, shivering and it's intermittent, it involves upper extremity and a little more of the thorax, you can use some pharmaceutical agents, including Buspar. Opioids are very good, so Demerol, fentanyl, those are all kind of very, very good for shivering. Magnesium, too, if, they're, if magnesium has some anti-shivering effects, I'm not really sure of the mechanism of action, but it does. And if your mag is less than two grams, um, then you can certainly replete it. Other things like benzodiazepines and propofol also can be very effective. So whatever it is, you need a protocol in place because this can really hurt all the positive effects or potentially positive effects and trouble that you've gone through to induce this person. And then finally, there's phase three shivering when it's kind of severe shivering and you've tried all of the one and two. Um, and then you can consider paralyzing the patient. It's really not preferred, but you can consider paralyzing the patient. There's different ways to do it. You can put them on a vecuronium drip. You can give them boluses of vec. Um, it, it all depends on the protocol that you've developed in your hospital. We use a vecuronium drip if we get to that stage. And, and the reason why we don't do this is we don't want to mask seizures. Um, and so that's why we really, really don't want to do this. And, and you know, when, when someone is hypothermic, they're... Um, metabolism is lowered, so drugs stay around a lot, lot longer. So that's something to kind of remember when you're thinking about hypothermia. Yeah. Can they get the shivering during the cooling process too, or it's only? Yeah, so the question um, is whether they can get shivering during the induction phase. Yeah, so absolutely. That's actually when most shivering is actually encountered. So it's during the rapid uh, decrease from the temperature of 37 to 33 is when you kind of see shivering the most. Once they're stabilized, either all your uh, adjunct therapies are working or the body kind of resets itself and doesn't shiver quite as much. So yes, it's usually during the rapid induction phase that you're going to see shivering.
So cost-effective strategies, a lot of things, um, you know, we worry about cost and cost-effectiveness, so we really want to make sure we're, we're doing, we're, we're considering all of those things. So um, mild therapeutic hypothermia is unlikely to add to ICU patients' overall cost. And what I really mean by that is these folks are going to the ICU anyways. They're intubated, they're sick, they probably have some underlying cause, they're going to the unit, and it's likely to add very little to their overall cost. And when you think about um, for, for pretty inexpensive, I mean, really the, the, most, um, the most cost is, is, is um, in the materials, and that's really, you could do it for normal saline and a cooling blanket, which you already probably have in your hospital. So um, ICU care is probably indicated in all these patients, so it's really little. Cooling machines supplies are the only cost, and little data to support inexpensive versus expensive methods. So there's all these you know, um, <coughs> companies out there with uh, uh, medical products and stuff, but um, it make your life easier, certainly, but it's not, it's, there's no evidence to suggest it's better than just MacGyvering it. Um, most EDs and hospitals already have temperature and control equipment, so you're kind of using stuff that's already there, so there's no overhead to kind of buy more stuff. So most of these hospitals, most hospitals actually have it, so it's just utilizing those resources. Yeah, you might be taking away from one department or one area or another, but that's, it's a shared cost, so to speak. Um, ice and cool saline are really cheap, and these total costs are distributed throughout the hospital. So it's not just the ED that needs to feel these, the brunt of this. It's not the ICUs that need to feel the brunt of this. It can be distributed really throughout the hospital. So let's go back to our case. So remember our case. This was our 57-year-old male in cardiac arrest, a downtime of three minutes. Uh, CPR was initiated by a bystander. VTAC was his initial rhythm, and he was given epi and then shocked out of his narrow complex rhythm with a return of spontaneous circulation. So in this case, what ended up happening was the paramedic, paramedics uh, arrived very early. A bystander actually did CPR extremely early. Paramedics initiated um, um, hypothermia protocol with uh, the protocols that are already established and, and using two liters of normal saline. They actually brought the patient to a cardiac ar arrest receiving center, which is UC Irvine. Uh, that's not true, but that's, that's uh, something I made up. And um, an EKG. What, what's that? Um, they did. They did. And they, they saw a pre-hospital EKG on this patient, and they did not see a STEMI at that time. Um, an EKG was done, um, and a glucose was done, um, both in the field and in the ED, and the EKG showed no active signs of ischemia, and a glucose was within normal limits. That was done almost immediately. You then considered uh, induction in the ED, and you continued with the normal saline that was already there, and you added cooling blankets. In the meanwhile, you actually ended up calling the ICU and getting them on board, as well as um, getting all of your adjuncts ready, so all of your ICU care down in the ED ready. So you did all your procedures. You did your A-line. You did your central line. You put your Foley catheter in. You put your esophageal probe in and you really got this patient packaged and with optimal care in the ED. You, uh, they sent him up into the um, ICU and they maintained this patient for 24 hours at 33 degrees. Um, they rewarmed this patient for eight hours. Um, in day three, he was extubated. 
and day seven he returned home and one month later he remained neurologically intact and returned to work. So this is an actual case, it's an anecdotal case, but this is an actual case of mine. And um, so this, was, this is something that, uh, that we hope that all of our patients' um, outcomes were as good as this, and, um, but they oftentimes are not. So pitfalls, here's some pitfalls, and I always like to give you a little things to kind of remember the case, and this is like salient things. So, um, you know, the first case is, am I obligated to use mild therapeutic hypothermia on a comatose nursing home patient who had return of spontaneous circulation and might have suffered a stroke? Um, the answer is no. Um, really, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and it's up to your attending physician and up to you guys to decide who you want to institute um, therapeutic hypothermia. Any, any thoughts from the attendings in terms of... Um, Utilizing therapeutic hypothermia and standards of care, and well, I mean, I agree with you. It's controversial, and certainly you have to be in a place where there's a system to implement it. You would want to think about it early, as you pointed out, and get the system activated if you're going to do it. Okay. I'm not aware of the medical legal literature on this. I haven't come across anybody who's been faulted for doing it or not doing it. Okay. Um, a patient arrested and had return of spontaneous circulation in the ED. The EKG showed a STEMI. I activated the cathium. Should I have waited to initiate mild therapeutic hypothermia before the ICU? No, you should always treat the underlying cause first, and that's what's going to get them out of trouble. Um, but oftentimes that can be done in parallel, so you can actually induce them and get them started on normal saline, cold normal saline, and then if they're going to whisk them away before they even start anything, that's, that's completely appropriate. Uh, as an ED physician, I'm eager to start mild therapeutic hypothermia right away as I have all the tools, really juiced about this stuff. <coughs> what should I do? Um, and this, this really brings uh, Dr. Koenig's uh, point um, back, which is that you really need an interdisciplinary approach. You need protocols in place. You need to talk to your pre-hospital providers. You need to have an ED champion, you need an ICU intensivist champion, and you need to make sure that that transition of care occurs and that you're all on board with all of this. The nurses have to be on board, and, and it's, it's an important undertaking. It's not, it's not a small task. Um, I was given an EKG on a patient undergoing uh, therapeutic hypothermia, and it had a lot of artifact and was difficult to read. What should I do? Well, go to the bedside and make sure they're not shivering. That's the biggest thing, or having a seizure for that matter. So make sure they're not shivering. If they're shivering, you induce your shivering protocols that we had talked about before because shivering is really the bane of therapeutic hypothermia's existence. EMS was called into the base hospital center and asked about starting therapeutic hypothermia in the field after cardiac arrest um, and return of uh, circulation. What should I do as a base hospital physician? Well, we know EMS is a vital part of the system and that starting cold-infused normal saline um, is thought to uh, be able to jumpstart the induction process, and um, it really requires having a refrigerator on board on these ambulances, um, which does re require some forethought. The patient developed atrial fibrillation. I shocked him, and she's back into a sinus rhythm. What should I do now? Well, you should stop <coughs> cooling them, and uh, that's, that's an absolute contraindication. Once they have a lethal rhythm, you stop. And whether it was from the therapeutic hypothermia or not, we're not really sure, but it's, it's, it's reason to stop. 
Um, I have a difficult time maintaining a constant temperature. Why is that? And uh, first of all, check for shivering. That could be happening. So even like mild shivering or moderate shivering could be could really be throwing a monkey wrench into the system. And um, and then the other thing is consider using an esophageal uh, temperature device because the rectal and uh, the Foley catheter probes sometimes you can overshoot um, easily as there's a slight lag, a 10 to 15 minute lag with temperatures and core temperatures. After several hours of stability, my patient became tachycardic. She was weaned off pressors and now is hypotensive again. The ultrasound showed a collapsed IVC. What should I do? Well, that's pretty easy. Cold can cause diuresis. Give them fluids, right? So fluid status with the CVP monitoring, urine output should be monitored really closely. Give fluid boluses on top of their, their induction boluses because that's what they need. While rewarming a patient, I noticed peak T waves. What happened? We talked about this already. Hyperkalemia can occur uh, during the rewarming phase. You should treat it appropriately. And uh, remember to get frequent electrolyte measurements when you're doing induction, rewarming, or even uh, anyone in the ICU um, post-cardiac arrest phase. So you should really, really remember to get frequent electrolytes. A patient went through uh, therapeutic hypothermia and is neurologically devastated days later. Why didn't it work? Well, there are no guarantees in life except for death. And so, you know, although we try all of our measures, just understand that, you know, there's something that brought them to this cardiac arrest and, um, and that they, it may not work after all the efforts that you've put in. Um, and my, my only um, caveat to all of this is therapeutic hypothermia in, in evaluating the existing evidence, which I know is limited, does not, sorry for, for the nomenclature, uh, create vegetables. It does not create vegetables. So there's no increased amount of adverse events with therapeutic hypothermia. Now, there's some benefit, according to a few small studies, and, and, and the evidence is still a little bit out there, but certainly it doesn't create more dead people. All right. <clears throat> um, finally, uh, controversies. Um, you know, is she smiling or is she not? That's why I put that up there. Uh, the big two controversies are uh, very few trials to support the evidence, as, um, as everyone's kind of pointed out. And uh, the generalizability of, of cardiac arrest patients really are a small portion of the number of patients we see in the emergency department. So I would agree heavily that, um, that, that like I said before, it doesn't increase the number of brain-dead patients. Um, and I think that we're going to see some ongoing studies that, uh, that will help um, tease all of this out. Um, as far as the second comment out there, um, you know, the allocation of resources to implement mild therapeutic hypothermia, uh, the answer is that all cardiac arrest patients are going to the unit anyways. And if that's the case, then mild therapeutic hypothermia is not adding any existing cost to an already, an, an ICU patient that's already there. And if neurologic improvement does occur, then you could see studies evaluating the cost effectiveness of using this non-pharmaceutical intervention. So a lot of these studies get supported because there's money to be made. You know, there's drug companies that want to make, you know, money from niceratide or, 
you know, whatever, activated protein C, and, you know, there's all this stuff was pumped uh, into our, our knowledge stream, and the stuff that, that doesn't get supported very much that might or might not have some benefit, um, but is really cheap um, and easy to do is uh, intriguing for me. I don't know. <laughs> so I didn't make any of this up. So, um, and uh, I had to, I had to showcase the wonderful new talent that we have in the department. So, um, this is their picture. So this is going to be up on the website.